This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. Despite overwhelming public support and growing scientific evidence of marijuana's therapeutic effects, the drug remains illegal under federal law. In your new book, Dying to Get High, Marijuana as Medicine, our guest today, co-author Wendy Chapkis, investigates one community of seriously ill patients fighting the federal government for the right to use physician-recommended marijuana. Chapkis is professor of sociology and woman and gender studies at the University of Southern Maine. She is the author of the award-winning book, Live Sex Acts, Women Performing Erotic Labor, and Beauty Secrets, Women and the Politics of Appearance. Wendy Chapkis, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm fine. Now, now you're up in, uh, in, uh, up in the Bay Area right now, are you not? I, I am. I'm out here for a month. Yeah. What, what brings you out here in the West Coast? Well, Santa Cruz is where I'm located right now, and it's my other hometown. I have these sort of bi-coastal hometowns, one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast, and I spend as much time as I can out here. Now, this is where where the book takes place, essentially, where um, Dying to Get High, uh, a good deal of it takes place. Could you you just talk about the organization there? Certainly, yes. Um, Well, I was living in Santa Cruz in the uh, 1980s, I was actually going to graduate school at UC Santa Cruz at the time and became familiar with um, a couple of, of locals, Valerie and Michael Corral. Um, and I uh, knew that they smoked marijuana, which made them absolutely no different than anybody else that I knew in my social world. Uh, but I also knew that Valerie said that she smoked cannabis uh, in part because it controlled her epileptic seizures. And... Um, I knew she she had told me that, but it sort of hadn't registered until she was arrested in uh, the early 90s for growing five plants in her garden. And despite the fact that the local district attorney had offered her what's called diversion, which meant that she could have the charges expunged if she simply went to you know drug education classes and promised not to use pot, uh, Valerie said she couldn't do that. Uh, because she needed to use cannabis as a medicine. And remember, this was well before there was a state law, well before Proposition 215 legalized Mm -hmm. medical use in the state. I had never heard of anything known as medical marijuana at the time. But I was very impressed that Valerie was uh, that committed to uh, her ability to use cannabis, that she was willing to go to trial on a medical necessity defense. And when she won, uh, she got a lot of, of media attention and people in the local community who had loved ones who um, were suffering from serious illness started contacting her to see if they could acquire cannabis in some way through her. This is mostly people who were not um, your typical recreational user, somebody whose wife was uh, suffering from breast cancer. Um, somebody who uh, had pancreatic cancer, those sort of things, and a lot of men living with HIV-AIDS. And so initially, and this is again in the early 90s, Valerie was driving around um, Santa Cruz giving out a little bud here and a little bud there for free to people 
uh, just to try to help them out. And after a while, she and her husband, Michael, went, my God, we can't continue to just sort of, you know, run around town giving out marijuana to a growing number of people in this informal way. So they decided to create a patient uh, collective. They named it WAM, the Women and Men's Alliance for Medical Marijuana. And, um, and that group came together in 1993 yeah. and began to collectively grow cannabis up on the corral's land. And what made this organization so fascinating to me, I mean, I was watching it from during my years here grow, was uh, that there was no exchange of money. The patients collectively grew the cannabis, so worked in the collective's garden, and then uh, harvested it, turned it into various medicinal products, including tinctures and capsules, baked goods, and a, a soy milk-based cannabis product, uh, and also, of course, smokables, uh, and gave it away to the membership. And the membership was 80% people who were living with life-threatening illness. So this was through the sickest of the sick. Um, and also, many people were in this collective were very poor, um, either because they were poor already when they became ill or became poor through the challenges of living with a serious or chronic illness. So anyway, it was a very interesting group. Um, I was fascinated by their success um, at providing medicine to people free of charge through collective labor. But I didn't really think of it as my subject, my uh, intellectual focus, because my work, as you know from having just read the titles of my other books, was very much in the area of gender and sexuality studies. But um, I was interested, and I started to sort of clip articles about the war on drugs and about uh, opposition to the medical use of marijuana, and I very quickly began to see interesting links between the work that I had done previously, for instance, on prostitution prohibition, and uh, the stuff I was reading about drug prohibition. You know, very similar arguments. I, I'd be curious about that. Could you, could you talk about what those links are between prostitution and, uh, and uh, <laughs> using marijuana? Sure. Um, well, in both cases, you have the U.S. increasingly isolated among most democratic uh, countries in insisting that drug use and sex are vice crimes that have to be prohibited and uh, punished by sending people to jail, for instance. Most places, Western Europe, Canada, so forth, these are places that are moving toward a harm reduction health-based model, so that you recognize that people are going to have sex and do drugs, and you try to figure out ways to minimize any of the hazards associated with that. Uh, if you look at the AIDS response to AIDS in this country or in Western Europe, uh, Western Europe did immediate, very explicit um, safe sex campaigns. The U.S. dragged its feet around AIDS until there were hundreds of thousands of people who had died. And even now, if you look at uh, attempts to get needle, clean needles into the hands of people who inject uh, um, drugs, the U.S. has resisted this very simple public health um, effort that would reduce the spread of HIV because our vision, the U.S. government's vision of how to deal with IV drug use is to punish people and to arrest them, not to help them do IV drugs in a safer way. So anyway, that was one of the links that I saw, attempts to prohibit prostitution or prohibit drug use, despite the fact that it makes the lives of participants and the broader community more dangerous rather than less, um, and the, the notion that it's somehow better 
or um, more effective to punish people than to assist them. So uh, that was a, a beginning of a link for me. And then the other thing was I was uh, struck by how paternalistic uh, attempts are to protect people from behaviors that a consenting adult want to engage in. Not only is it ineffective, but I think it's sort of inappropriate for the federal government. Mm. So we're speaking with Wendy Chapkis. The book is Dying to Get High, Marijuana as Medicine. And, and we've, we've demonized um, this plant in this country for a long time, uh, cannabis. Uh, why, why is that? What, what is it about our culture that makes us want to uh, you know, take something that in some ways is very beneficial and, and turn it into a, a, a devilish potion? You know, that's a fascinating question. It was one that I was really puzzled by, too, especially as I started to do a little um, historical research because from the mid-19th century to almost the mid-20th century, cannabis was a recognized medicinal herb. It was in all kinds of medicinal products that you could get. In fact, it was in the U.S. Pharmacopeia, the you know, sort of standard guide of medicines in the U.S. until 1941. I mean, that's very recent. So I was fascinated by what, what happened that transformed this very common medicinal herb into this demon plant. And uh, when that began was in the 1930s, late 1930s, when a federal drug bureaucracy was created for the first time uh, under the leadership of a man named Anslinger. Mm -hmm. And I think as part of an attempt to, uh, to justify this growing federal bureaucracy, um, the Anslinger um, um, effort to find a drug that nobody had heard of, and then to use it as a, uh, a weapon of fear to get uh, kind of a moral panic going around drugs. And the drug that he selected for that was uh, cannabis, but he called it marijuana in order to link it to Mexican immigrants mm -hmm. uh, and the urban poor. And there was, as probably many of your listeners know, a, a real concerted propaganda campaign. That was the... Uh, the years of uh, the Hearst newspapers doing mm -hmm. exposés on uh, people smoking marijuana and, and going crazy, the reefer madness years. Yeah. Um, and it was very effective. People became very frightened of this drug that was linked in the popular imagination with, again, with Mexican immigrants, urban blacks, the sort of um, the demimonde, and it was prohibited yeah. for both uh, recreational and medical use. And in fact, by 1970, when the federal government created what are called schedules for drugs, that is, uh, all drugs, legal and illegal, are divided into um, several different schedules. And the most restricted schedule is Schedule 1. That's the uh, same category as heroin, for instance. That uh, category of drugs have been defined as extremely dangerous with a high potential for abuse and no medical use. And that's the category that marijuana was placed yeah. in. And yet there was virtually no medical evidence to support that contention. Or was <laughs> there? Was Did they even do any research before they, did they made the decision to make it a Schedule One drug? Well, it's interesting. They did a lot of research uh, to document the harms of cannabis use. I mean, that, that research has been funded very heavily. Uh, and they found that there were some harms, um, particularly associated with the delivery system of smoking, not surprisingly. And we all know that inhaling particulate matter can do damage to the lungs. 
Um, but no, there was uh, no research or very very little research actually done on whether or not cannabis uh, had an accepted medical use, although there was some. Uh, and all of the research that was done in that period around possible medical uses, most of it related to the anti-nausea properties um, that many people report when they smoke cannabis, and that was studied with uh, regard to cancer chemotherapy. So patients who do cancer chemotherapy, uh, the drugs often make them extremely nauseous, and there were studies done to see whether uh, cannabis consumption might alleviate that nausea. And all of the studies that were done at the state level on that were uh, indicating that, yes, it had great potential as an anti-nausea drug. Um, But that was not what the federal government wanted to hear. And so interestingly, this is one of the things, incidentally, that kind of blew my mind. If you, you know, start studying something that you... um, don't know that much about, but you think, oh, well, if, they, if the federal government says, for instance, that there's no medical value, it must be because they found out through scientific uh, research that there's no medical value. And it blew my mind when I discovered that what the federal government did was prohibit any scientific research into the possible medical value of yeah. cannabis for many years, for 12 years, from the mid-1980s until the late 1990s. Um, the federal government didn't allow one single FDA-approved scientific study into the possible therapeutic value of cannabis to go forward. And the way they were able to do that was fascinating. Any other drug in the United States, including LSD and heroin and every other substance, uh, can be provided to authorized medical researchers through a number of different sources, licensed sources. So if you get FDA approval to do a study on the possible therapeutic value of LSD in uh, treating end-of-life anxiety, for instance, and there's studies like that underway right now. You can get your LSD from a number of licensed providers. If you get FDA approval to do a study on the possible therapeutic value of cannabis to control cancer chemotherapy-related nausea, the only source for the marijuana is through the DEA and NIDA, two agencies set up to study the harms of drug use. And, in fact, for 12 years, the DEA and NIDA refused to provide the cannabis that researchers needed to conduct the FDA-approved studies. Uh, and it wasn't until California passed Proposition 215 in the late 90s that that blockade on federal research was um, broken. And finally, in, uh, starting in 1998, uh, the federal government was sort of shamed into beginning to release cannabis again for FDA-approved studies. And since then, there's been um, a number of studies that have shown that cannabis has um, extraordinary potential as a medicine, um, for instance, yeah, uh, for cancer chemotherapy. Pardon me? I, I want to talk more about that, uh, just the benefits of, uh, you know, the health benefits of. By the way, we're talking with Wendy Chapkus. The book is Dying to Get High. And uh, just tell, us, tell us about that. Uh, you talked about the anti-nausea the mm-hmm. properties of, of uh, cannabis. What are the other things that uh, can be beneficial about it? Well, the studies that are underway that, um, or that have just been completed um, suggest that uh, neuropathic pain can be very effectively treated with cannabis and cannabinoids. 
Neuropathic pain is nerve pain, and it's associated with things like spinal cord injury, um, HIV infection and treatment, diabetes. Um, so those are, are conditions that create this extremely difficult-to-treat nerve pain. And there's been, um, in the past few years, three different pain studies that all concluded that marijuana brought relief comparable to available prescription drugs. There's also work being done on the use of cannabis for um, MS, pain relief, and spasm reduction. Mm. Uh, so there's a, there's a whole number of, um, of medical conditions. Other things like uh, ocular pressure yeah. reduction in people suffering from glaucoma or a, a wasting syndrome uh, for patients who are suffering from AIDS who have a loss of appetite seizure activity in patients with epilepsy. Many of these things are in fairly preliminary stages of um, scientific trials, and that's, again, because the federal government until quite recently prohibited those trials. Yeah, and I, when, I, when I hear these stories and I hear what you say of the, the bureaucracy set up against marijuana or, or cannabis, um, still the question to me is, is why? And I, and I know the mechanics of it, but I'm wondering what's going on inside the brains of people like Anslinger and, well, and I don't know Clinton what... <laughs> and, and, and even and, Obama, and for well, that and, matter. Why, why, why well, doesn't somebody just wake up and say, for example, you know, uh, we, we have a, a president-elect who's now saying, you know, he's completely against any sort of legalization of marijuana. I, I, I don't understand why it is we're so... Uh, close to that? Well, I, you know, I, again, I think it's a, it's a very important question. And what I've concluded is that it is largely about a enormous federal bureaucracy that needs to defend its existence and its the subsidiaries at the state level. Uh, for instance, there is, um, you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars going to the drug war. It would be extremely hard to justify that apparatus were cannabis not illegal, because cannabis is the most widely used illicit substance by far in the United States. The other drugs that are illegal are used by a tiny percentage of people. And it would be, it would be impossible, I think, to justify the expenditures on the drug war if it was only directed at that small no. population of people who use other drugs. Almost half of all adults uh, have used cannabis at some point in their life. Is, is it, so cannabis is, a, you know, is, a, is an easy and an effective target for that. Yeah. It is kind of the bread and butter. This is where you get into what some might describe as sort of the fringe ex explanations of why. But, but marijuana, uh, uh, the arrest and prosecution of people who smoke marijuana... Is kind of the bread and butter of the the uh, of the uh, prison industrial complex, isn't it? I mean, Precisely, yes, it is. And, I, and again, I don't think this is this is absolutely central to why cannabis is um, is still a prohibited substance. Well, I, and I, there's something in our culture I do believe that we we have retained that goes back to the 30s and 40s and 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 into uh, the present day that has to do with the wrong people, and he said in quotes, the wrong people smoked marijuana, the, yes. going back to the minorities, of the, the blacks and Hispanics, and into the 60s when mm -hmm. the anti-war, uh, so-called anti-war element within the country were smoking marijuana. It's been my contention 
that it's mostly illegal because the wrong people used it. And we're still fighting a culture war to this day. I mean, you talked about the 80s when uh, the research was banned. Well, that was the, in the middle of the Reagan administration, and no one had the courage, not even the Clinton administration, to try to reverse this perception. And this That's is right. about culture. We're still fighting the culture wars going back to the 30s and 40s. That's that's right, and I think you're absolutely right that there is a culture of fear around challenging this. Even though there is no good reason to fear the American voter will punish politicians who might be, I, I think their language is sort of soft on drugs. Yeah. When you look at, um, at opinion polls, around, at least around the medical use of cannabis, yeah. uh, people overwhelmingly support the decriminalization of the medical use of cannabis. 80% of Americans. Yeah. Or if you look at the, the recent election, the one that just took place in November, uh, marijuana was decriminalized in Massachusetts. It was just made a civil infraction by a higher percentage of voters than voted for Obama. Medical marijuana passed in Michigan by almost 10 percentage points higher than the population voted for Obama. Yeah. And in Montana in 2004, medical marijuana passed by 62% of the population, and Bush, who, who carried the state, only won by 59%. So, I mean, we're, it's not like this is a fringe issue that only, you know, the, the radical left supports, and yet elected officials are, are still very reluctant to take it on. And in some ways, it's even more egregious than that. Just the, uh, I have a friend who's involved in the, uh, the industrial hemp movement, mm -hmm. and the resistance from the federal government on that has been remarkable in that there is no uh, psychotropic or psychoactive uh, uh, um, element within this stuff, and yet you could not grow um, industrial hemp in this country. I don't. I think still today you're not allowed. It's against the law to oh, grow. Oh, Schwarzenegger. Yes, yeah, Schwarzenegger vetoed a measure in California. Quite proudly vetoed it. This yeah. is about. This is about clothing and and oil, uh, skin oil, and I mean, there's thousands of uses for this thing. This is a weed. This is another thing. If we started, the pharmaceutical industry has to be concerned about something that you can grow in your in your on your porch that will essentially uh, take take supplant the use of a, uh, of a lot of their their drugs as well. Yes, actually, there's a, a chapter in Dying to Get High where we talk specifically about the ways in which uh, the pharmaceutical industry stands to gain from the continued yeah. criminalization of cannabis because. The pharmaceutical industry is aware that cannabis and cannabinoids have medicinal value. There's uh, a good bit of research being done now on how to use uh, cannabis or, or elements within a, the plant um, for medicines, but it's going to be incredibly hard to make those medicines profitable, as you say, if people can just grow their own. Yeah. We're speaking with Wendy Chapkiss. The book is Dying to Get High, Marijuana as Medicine. And I just want to say it's a, it's, it's a wonderful common-sense book. Uh, congratulations on putting out something that people can read and understand and, and uh, get through and, and be persuaded. Uh, have you given it to uh, Barack Obama yet? I haven't. If anybody yeah. has a way to get it into his hands, just let yeah. me know. I'd <laughs> yeah. be quite happy to. As somebody in his administration, some, I think we have an opportunity here in this administration yeah. to at least make some inroads and, and, and uh, take down the drug war a little bit. I, I should hope we would. It, oh, I hope so. I hope so, yeah. too. I, I just, it's such a, of all the things that can be done to sort of trim down the federal government, this is among mm -hmm. the low-hanging fruit that we can really seriously sink our teeth. I think that you probably know the statistics better than I, but what are we spending now in the drug war? Um, 
it, when you include foreign aid to Colombia and all these other places. It's in the oh, tens. Of, it's in the tens yeah, of billions. I think it's over twenty or thirty billion dollars a year. Yes, it's billions. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, what's uh, the what's WAM doing now? That's Women and Men's Alliance for Medical Marijuana. Uh, well, and- it is still around. I mean, one of the wonderful things that we talk about in the book, one of the horrifying and wonderful things, is that in um, two thousand and two, almost a year to the day after the September eleventh attack, the federal government decided that one of the biggest law enforcement problems in the United States was this collective of 250 mostly terminally ill people growing their own medicine. And so they staged a dawn raid on, uh, yeah, on Valerie and Michael Krell's home, seized the patient's crop, uh, arrested them, mm-hmm. and, uh, and attempted to break the organization that way. And what was incredibly encouraging to me in those early years of the 21st century when the federal government seemed so out of control uh, was that these patients fought back, and they were joined by the city and county of Santa Cruz, and they sued the federal government, and they won in federal Excellent. court. And for a year, they had the only legal medical marijuana garden in the country. <laughs> and uh, they, that lawsuit, they actually lost that protective injunction when the Supreme Court ruled in another marijuana case, the Raich case. But they still uh, continue to fight back. They're still suing, and that case is making its way through the federal courts. Uh, I was in court with them about um, three months ago, and they had won the latest round. They're now deposing federal officials. Uh, so they're continuing. They are struggling to survive because all of their income is donations. So yeah. if anybody's interested in supporting this organization, you can go to wham.org, W-A-M-M.org, and find out more about the organization. And if anybody's interested in my book, you can go to dyingtogethigh.net and uh, read excerpts from the book or uh, read reviews of it. All right. Uh, the book again, Dying Get High, Marijuana is Medicine. Wendy Chapkis, thanks so much for being on Weekly Signals. Thank you. It was a pleasure. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals.